Egypt, 3rd century BC. At its peak, it is estimated that the Library of Alexandria held anywhere from 40,000 to 400,000 written works on its shelves. Picture a massive stone building filled with hundreds of wizened scholars poring over sheets of papyrus. And imagine the smell of torch fire and ink and thousands upon thousands of pages. But also remember this was a time before routine bathing, so maybe, maybe don't do that. Yet, to call one of the most famous buildings in recorded history, a mere library, does it a disservice. Though we do not know the full extent of its dimensions or size, we know nothing of the scale was conceived of before. This was a sprawling complex that housed lecture halls, gardens, archives, and even zoos. For housing so much art and wisdom under its roof, the Ptolemaics dedicated this complex to the Nine Muses, and from this we get the name Museum. After Alexander the Great had died, his legacy, which was pretty much the entirety of the known Western world, was inherited by Ptolemy I Soter, who organized the construction of the museum. Though it was most definitely a library as we would recognize it today, the Alexandrian Museum did not hold tomes in the traditional sense. These books were actually papyrus scrolls, and just how many existed among the archives is still unknown. If you were a big name in philosophy, mathematics, or physics at the time, chances are you studied at Alexandria. Euclid and Archimedes are just some of the many great minds that peruse these hallowed halls, and though historians debate over timeline inconsistencies, it is believed female scholars, such as Hypatia and Adesia, studied there as well. Countries and empires the world over would often donate their collections to the library as gifts for the Alexandrian rulers. Any ship that came into port, and there were many, considering Alexandria was a major trading hub, had to surrender their books to the library scribes, who would keep the original texts, produce one extra copy, and give their original owners a fresh copy to keep in return. Because of this methodology, it is said that the Library of Alexandria still holds the distinction as one of the largest collections of written works in all of civilization, becoming the knowledge capital of the ancient world. Tragically, it was never to last. Though there are many legends surrounding the burning of the library at Alexandria, the truth is that there was no singular conflagration responsible for quite literally wiping out a majority of written history up until that time. Though Ptolemy I was a king devoted to wisdom, his eighth successor was a paranoid, vengeful, and unpopular ruler. The arrogant Ptolemy VIII, Physcon, was an opportunistic murderer who was hated by the well-learned Alexandrian stock and anybody with a lick of sense at the time. After a failed assassination attempt, Ptolemy VIII took vengeance on those who defied him, and expelled all intellectuals from his city, including the keepers of the library. Because of this, the library at Alexandria fell into disrepair. Ptolemy VIII would go on to earn the posthumous name Physcon, which translates to roughly as the bloated sausage, proving that the right side of history always has the final insult. In the following decades, the library was accidentally burned during Caesar's invasion, and then deliberately set ablaze by Emperor Aurelian. Around 260, it was almost entirely vacant, and most of its leftover resources had been relocated to a smaller, sister library in the city, until that was destroyed by rampaging Coptic Christians in 391 AD. We'll never know just how many written works were lost in these two literal attacks on knowledge. 
The worst of humanity has always had a terrible penchant for burning books, if not burning people. The Nazis were certainly no stranger to these methods, for one, and yes, I did just shoehorn our season arc into this episode. Enjoy. Whether by fire or by negligence, many of the greatest stories of all time have gone unread. So what was written in these long-lost tomes? Welcome to another It Belongs in a Museum episode of Relic. My name is Maxwell, as usual, and I am joined today by Morgan and Brent of The Frankenpod. Big fan of your podcast as a lover of gothic literature, uh, but can you tell listeners what to expect when they tune into your show? Oh, hi. Yeah, thank you for listening to it. Um, Yeah, it's basically we talk about uh, gothic classics like, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, and some more modern uh, things like we're looking at Rebecca with uh, 33% pulp. Ooh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. It's really exciting. but um, They're awesome. They are so cool. Uh, we we basically, I read the books and I, I watch the movies. And Brent watches the movies because, uh, yeah, he's more into that sort of side of things. And yeah, we come together and we talk about the differences between the movies and we kind of relate them back to literature concepts and yeah it's a nice way for me to nerd out in an audio format and Brent gets to watch some movies he wouldn't otherwise probably watch as closely probably not <laughs> have you have you seen Rebecca yet I have I don't think Brent has no I've never seen it yeah I've also I I've studied uh quite a bit of Daphne du Maurier so I uh, Rebecca's not one of my favorite novels of hers, but it's certainly one of the best movie adaptions I've seen. So, because she also wrote Hitchcock, the um, uh, the Birds, which was oh, she did the Birds. Yeah, she wrote the huh. Birds. I didn't know that. Yeah, she wrote the Birds. What else did she write? Uh, the Scapegoat. Um, there's quite there's quite a few uh books she's written that have uh become films and a few of them were Hitchcock films. He must have really liked Demorio's writing. But yeah. yeah, so very yeah. excited about that one. I've I've seen I've seen Don't Look Now, um, which is uh I haven't read the the book or the novel that it's based off of, but I've seen the movie. Uh I'm not sure if you've seen that. That's a good one. It has uh Donald Sutherland in it. Right? No, I haven't seen that one. I it might be. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, no, I haven't seen that one. Sorry. It's it's really good. So that, I'm gonna put that on your list. I'm sure we could nerd out about a lot of literature. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Which is what we're kind of going to be doing today. But uh, it's going to be nothing that you've ever read, nothing I've ever read, and I would say that no one's read for a while because it's gone missing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, as as the case is, uh, things get burnt things get lost um do you have any sort of background on lost literature that you want to to bring up um i uh probably the background that i kind of gleaned from my uh, uh most of the stuff that i looked at was during the romantic uh movement the romantic poets and the like 
And there was a oh. kind of, there was kind of a gatekeeper publisher to a lot of those sort of works called John Murray, and he kind of ma- he kind of made or broke uh, whether a narrative uh, went out into the public, and that's one of the reasons why um, we didn't see the light of day for John Polidori's uh, account of uh, the Villa Diodati, where uh, Frankenstein and the vampire. Uh, had their genesis. That's the reason we didn't get that narrative till a hundred years later from uh, the Doctor. But yeah, that's basically the sort of stuff that I looked into. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you probably looked into more classical things. <laughs> I guess. Sorry. <laughs> well, mine go way back, but uh, oh gosh, there's so much like t- potential for tangent in this conversation. I know. I love the story of the the Villa Diodati, which I probably mispronounced. That that just the whole like that how one weekend spawned so much literature um and the whole like year without a summer thing that like kind of led to that it's just all of these really weird kind of creepy like almost supernatural circumstances that led to the advent of supernatural literature as as we know it it's it's fascinating it's definitely the stuff that myths are made of you can see how it's kind of been Mm. uh immortalized and there's so many rumors surrounding it and and we've just got no way of knowing how much of it's true and how much of it's just the whole mess of the romantic movement is just full of hyperbole and plain lies really actually yeah that's that's for sure um the fact that mary shelley in her time as a woman uh, got to get out there with her literature and then have so much to say in it that didn't get edited out is kind of a feat in and of itself. But I'm sure you already know that. And like, I don't know why I feel like I'm I'm no. talking up to the professionals here. I'm no. trying to impress the big kids. I, but, um. I love talking about Mary Shelley. I love hearing people's opinions. It's yeah, I love it. It's great. I, I can't get enough of it. It's just, yeah. It's wonderful. All right, we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of fun here if the internet uh, <laughs> decides to comply. Uh, for listeners out there, just bear with us. If anything weird happens, any weird edits, uh, we're doing this podcast on literal different sides of the planet, so just keep that in mind. But anyways, I'm gonna throw it to you guys first as um, my guests that I'm super excited to have on the show. Uh, what was your first lost book that you would like to get into? So what I was I I was doing this and I'm I'm very new at this, I'm very new at I don't really do the whole literature thing. I'm not much of a reader, but what I did, it's decide, okay. We're all friends here. It's fine. <laughs> what I did decide to do was look into L. Frank Baum. Baum, yes. Oh. Yeah. So I have a very theatrical background. I work in a theatre. And uh, it's very interesting to me. So when Morgan told me that we're coming on your show, I thought maybe I would look into uh, some theatrical playwrights and stuff that might have gone missing. Uh, so Frank Baum was a author who... He had, wrote The Wizard of Oz. He wrote The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote the uh, the very uh, the original book... Um, and so I thought I would cover a couple of his lost uh, 
story. Absolutely. Um, I, a really shameful fact, I can recite the uh, MGM movie backwards and forwards. <laughs> like, from the, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, it's a bit sad. That's impressive. I watched it since I was three. <laughs> I I uh I had an imaginary friend called Dorothy when I was about three years old. I watched it that much, and yeah. So when Brent said he's going to do this, I'm like, ah, yay! But yeah, the man definitely had his issues. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's like, oh, you're like really cool with women's suffrage, but not so cool with the Native Americans. Oh, yeah. It's like, Right. You just raise me up and then you just throw me down, Al Frank. <laughs> like, oh. So in his younger days, he was a very uh, distracted child and uh, he's showed Same. an interest. What's up? Same, he said. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so his father uh, didn't like him being an actor and didn't want him to act under the, the Balm name. And... Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, his father was a fairly successful um, businessman. So he used to play under the name George Brooks. So instead of uh, being Frank Baum, which he preferred, he would go under George Brooks during his performances. Um, At some point, his father decided that he would uh, buy a theatre for his son. Uh, which, wow yeah that's a turnaround <laughs> yeah at some point it's like he discovered that it was financially viable maybe yeah oh, <laughs> so yeah so i think he looked at it as a business interest uh the theater actually only stayed around for about a year before it uh was burnt to the ground um this is huh. where this is where it comes into the sort of relic theme because uh Baum used to do a lot of his works in the theater and all of his okay. scripts and stuff stayed in the theater. So when it oh, caught no. fire, he lost most of his early works. Uh, he was about 24 when it happened. And he was out touring with another production when the fire happened. Uh, oh, man. Funnily enough, <laughs> which is sort of the ironic thing coincidence was uh the performance that was in the theater when it caught fire was called matches <laughs> of course it was so, that's great also a travesty but yeah hey, irony so and i believe from the research i've done i believe the manuscripts for matches were lost as well in the fire so uh it's it sort of lost to us as well um so matches went up in flames. Matches totally <laughs> went up in flames. Yes, a hundred percent. Some of his other works that were there when uh, when the fire happened. So the Maid of Athens was another one that uh, have it was incomplete. So they may have had some of it, but it was incomplete. Uh, so one that struck my interest a lot was the pea green poodle. <laughs> okay yeah haven't heard that one no so uh interesting enough uh he was a dog who lived on an island that was entirely populated by dogs and there was a ruler the the, the dog king and his name was Hirowag. so every year Hirowag would fight 
one of the uh, other dogs and if they won then they would take over the kingdom okay into it yeah <laughs> really because i was sort of like uh okay <laughs> this one caught i mean me dog off game of thrones i could get behind it <laughs> yeah i didn't even it's like isle of dogs meets game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> so this poodle named pippo tib he um of course pippo tib see i right I, I can see that you you're see saying it. it right i'm just still i'm glad you were checking my you know. i'm sorry no 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 that's good because i thought for a while there that i was just getting it wrong you were imagining the name pippo I mean, tib i can see that how yeah like i don't know how much stranger i couldn't make this stuff up uh it's very alfred bomb that's for sure oh yeah yeah and the whole green poodle thing definitely fits in with the green theme of everything else it's, it's amazing so he definitely had a thing for the color green. He did. He did. He did. So this dog Pippo Tib, uh, he laughed aloud. This is this is some of the the phrasing from what little bits they have of the actual story there. Uh, so he laughed aloud, and this made Hero Wag angry. Uh, so he decided that he was going to challenge Pippo Tib in the next year's challenge. So <laughs> it's still I'm that sorry. name. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it is. So right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just making... I'm just waiting for him to say Pippo Tim again. Let's just let's be honest. Okay. I know, it's amazing. I don't want to disappoint you. So Pippo Tim <laughs> went to the dog fairy queen. Of course, there's a fairy queen. Of dogs. <laughs> of dogs. And Not the human fairy queen. No, no, no. No. What, what could she do? She's, she's, she doesn't know the dog world. Uh, so she he asked her for strength and wisdom to defeat the king in a test of body and mind. And the queen agreed to it only if Hero Wig didn't die. That he he wasn't to be killed so pippo tib again he falls into a lake what that is uh this is on his journey to the the capital to okay. fight the uh to fight yeah hero wag the the dog king are you sure this isn't just your weird dream that you're just telling us? Because I could totally believe that. This is this is this is just a story he reads to the kids every night. <laughs> <laughs> so Pippo Tib on the way. I wish I had this sort of imagination. I really do. This is amazing. In this day and age, it would have sold like crazy. Uh, so he's on his way, and he falls into uh, falls into a lake. Where there's pistachio, pistachio, what? Pistachio nuts. They're pistachio nuts falling into the water. He's not making this up. Yeah, no. Have died. The pistachio nuts falling into the water have dyed the lake green. Green. And the poodles. I was hoping to be pistachio ice cream, but okay. So Pippo, oh. so Pippo Tib wasn't green yet. No, he wasn't green yet. Okay, well now the pistachio oh. nuts have turned him green. Yes. Exciting. <laughs> Interesting developments. Yeah. <laughs> so this creates a bit of a sensation when he arrives for the challenge 
because there was a prophecy that Heroig would be defeated by a green pea, a pea green colored opponent. So the two the two dogs fight and Biffo Tib uh eventually he he wins and uh Herowig Herowag oh Herowag, sorry, I said wig. That was bad. You can edit <laughs> yeah, that. I kept bit hearing Herowag and I'm like <laughs> wait <Yeah>. a second. <laughs> Herowag. <laughs> uh he slinks away for a life of retirement. Uh and the the poodle assumes the crown and becomes a better and more honorable monarchy monarch monarch i'm sorry <laughs> i am not an english major whatsoever okay and you guys are actually from the monarchy technically speaking so yes of yeah. anyone here to get that yes yes <laughs> unfortunately we are still part of the monarchy um yeah so Yay. so this uh this short story was adapted into a play and the drama no, no people actually acted this out <laughs> i want to see the costume of the pea green poodle so badly really bad maybe we convince the kids oh we'll god do like no don't no <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah the dramatized version was never produced on stage and has not survived so we're not sure what has happened to the uh the pea green poodle. The tail of Pippo Tib. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of disappeared to, to the histories. I'm not one to knock uh a writer's work, especially an established writer, but I'm just gonna say of all of the books that we might discuss on this episode, perhaps the loss of Pippo Tib, <laughs> the pea green the pea green poodle. It's not the worst tragedy that has befallen um, the oh. literary world. No, probably not. Probably not. Also, I just realized pistachios are not artificially dyed green, which is sad, and I'm still not over that. <gasps> I just assumed that that was that was artificial. Yeah. No, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, they make pistachio ice cream here, and I'm still not sure how I feel about that. I well, I'm Italian, so I like it. I mean, we Italians were a nut people. We just like savory <laughs> and sweet. So like almonds, marzipan, which I guess is technically almonds, uh, <laughs> hazelnuts, pistachio, all of that's good stuff. So I think I just have like the flavor palette for it. But wow. Anyways, I that think, was a weird tangent. I think, um, I think what are I'm, we? Uh, my favorite murder. Yeah. I know, right? Um, <laughs> I wish I do. <laughs> I really do. Anyways, anyways, back to Brent. <laughs> Sorry, Brent. <laughs> this so, is what our podcast normally is, just me interrupting Brent and him looking increasingly exhausted by trying to I'm so talk over the top of me. <laughs> no, it's an honor to have fine. you here. I'm totally used to it by now. I get interrupted all the time. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. So another lost novel by uh, Frank Baum was uh, one called Johnson which was written okay. for an adult audience. And uh, he sent it away to be published. And there were some... The only history we have of this left is a couple of... Um, a couple of correspondence that were between him and the publisher. So there was two, one of which says that... Uh, 
the magazine Cosmopolitan had rejected his uh his book and then a couple of months later or about a month later he uh tried to get in contact with them again and they uh i'm on the edge of my seat (laughs) (laughs) i need to know what happened to l franks johnson (laughs) oh god so well (laughs) as we all do Uh, so uh furthermore it was uh once again rejected and and uh in a bitter end the uh publisher actually lost his uh he lost his johnson lost yeah his lost johnson. his johnson yep <laughs> yeah so that was quite sad yeah so and there were uh do, do you... at least three other books which were lost and one more of which were lost by the publisher as well Name and shame them. The Riley Britain. They yeah. They, they, oh, yeah. No. Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 took the manuscripts and then they just lost them because yeah. they didn't want to publish them. It's just that's irresponsible. Do we know the plot of L. Frank's L. Frank Bombs Johnson? Johnson? Which no. I can't say with a straight face. We don't no. Know. No. Another one of his adult ones was Molly Oodle. Yeah. Do we Mo- know the plot? Of, do Mo- we know the plot of Molly Oodle or not? I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. So did it, did like, I feel like if I was a writer who was bitter, which is in fact me all the time, because <laughs> that's just me as a person. I feel like if they, someone lost a manuscript of mine, I would, you know, definitely just tell everyone about how irresponsible that person was also because they rejected my manuscript and I'm petty like that. But I would also kind of say, yeah, this is what it was about, just because people are naturally curious. So it's weird that there's no, like, like, that almost, like, at first I was just like, hey, there's a dick joke, I'm going to capitalize on it. But now that I'm thinking about it, um, maybe there was something, do you think there was, you said it was adult, but, like, I don't think that necessarily means, like, adult in, like, an erotic sense. But was, was it rejected on any sort of, like, I don't think of, like, Dr. Seuss, like, he has a past that's very... Uh, steeped in like erotica and sexual situations which isn't something that people on the surface who know his books know about but for l frank Baum, i feel like he was a little bit more straight-laced though at the time there was a lot of erotica going on in the underground but there's no indication that that was the case here no no um more than likely what it was is that a lot of his other works were aimed at children so for him to write an adult oh. novel was sort of a bit out of character. They didn't, wasn't marketable. Typecast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he was a racist, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Which I didn't know until right. you mentioned, so I feel really bad now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, definitely look it up. I mean, all of yeah. your faves are problematic, Ex- as they say. Yeah. But yeah. Um, he did write some great stuff and very valuable especially to the american consciousness and really the international consciousness too i shouldn't just like sit like no but um yeah was there anything else that you wanted to talk about related to l frank Baum, johnson's or poodles (laughs) (laughs) no i think we might leave it at that for now (laughs) all right Okay, um, that was really cool, and as someone who's read a couple of the Oz books, I had no idea about that, so that's, I'm definitely going to look that up after we record, because I want to know more about that, so thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, my 
first book, which is really two, I'm kind of cheating here, uh, is a li- they're they're older significantly, um, and the the first one is a book called On Sphere Making by a gentleman known as Archimedes, whom you may have heard about. When I think when I think of Archimedes, I think of triangles, um, or the owl from. I want to say the sword in the stone, but I might be wrong. That sounds I'm right. It's the... I were to go with it. Anyways, so Archimedes, for those of you who never took a maths class, is a uh, guy who was basically responsible for math and our understanding of physics as it started in the uh, ancient world. That was not really well said, but um, he was he was a really big key player in um, you know the early discovery of how things work and how things move. Um, you know, common physics, pulleys, that sort of thing. They all kind of can be traced back to Archimedes. So he was a very smart guy, very ahead of his time. He was a philosopher as well as a mathematician and like an early, like the first physicist, if you want to think about it. A uh, really cool guy. And there's a lot of his work out there that did end up surviving throughout the ages, except for something called On Sphere Making. Now this book, the we know about it because of a gentleman named Pappas, who lived actually 500 years after Archimedes. And what it was, was described as a book for making complex clockwork mechanisms, basically what we would think of as planetariums, or um, they're also known as orreries. And essentially what it is, is in the ancient world, the, the an orrery or a planetarium, as we would recognize it to this day, is... There is a sphere, kind of like a globe of the world, but it has the, the moon and the sun and a bunch of moving parts. So if you needed to check a certain date for the position of like the stars or the planets, yeah. you would just kind of twist it and it would go towards that. Um, which sounds kind of rudimentary, except for the fact that this is clockwork uh, yeah. technology, yeah. which we all thought was very hypothetical back then so it was just assumed that this was his idea he really didn't know how it would work it was just kind of an invention but then you start but then you start to see that there are people in history who are like no we actually discovered these objects a soldier a a roman soldier who had brought back allegedly these two uh spheres or planetariums or orreries they kind of are all the same thing i think um great researcher i am uh marsilius brought allegedly brought this back he gave one to the temple or the temple of virtue in rome and then he kept one uh the existence of which is now lost so it's kind of a lost treasure in and of itself yeah. because there's this lost treasure the book and then there's the object that came from the book um and he he basically described it as you know you would turn you just like turn a handle and like the sun and the moon would move around and it was this marvelous invention and he was like dang even though I just destroyed and ransacked this guy this he was pretty cool, <laughs> um, but you know people thought it was just a story because you know soldiers back then they t- told tall tales this is like the land that created you know the famous Greek epics which you know interwove mythology with history. So people just thought that this might be something like that. From what I read, I could be my reading of that could be wrong. But we're going to fast forward 
to the 1900s with the discovery of something known as the Antikythera mechanism or the Antikythera mechanism, um, which was a object discovered in a shipwreck uh, near Antik- Antikythera. <laughs> Might be Antikythera. I had it written down, and now I can't. I'm like scrolling up and down, panicking. See, this is, oh, this is the point. This is the point where I would say, "Hey, Morgan, Morgan, am I pronouncing this yeah, right?" Yeah, I've got no clue on this one. <laughs> <sighs> All right, so we're just gonna go with the Antikythera. Sounds good to me. Um, uh, they brought it up, and the people who brought it up were like, what is this weird box we found in the ship with all these like old artifacts? They open it up, and lo and behold, there is what looks like um, a bunch of gears, like clockwork, which oh, wow. they're just like, okay, this clearly is misdated. This, There's something wrong here, because... Um, you know, clockwork, as we understand it, didn't arise until like the 1400s. So sure enough, for many years, a lot, people thought that this was an object that came from somewhere later on and somehow ended up in the shipwreck or it was misstated. No one actually took it seriously. They're like, there's no way we in our ethnocentric view of history could ever uh, conceive of the ancients, you know, developing technology um, a lot of people who are into ancient alien theorism, which is something I'm very fascinated by, but do not believe. And I want to make sure that's abundantly clear. <laughs> I, do follow, I do follow the ancient aliens guy on Twitter. Um, I think I still do. Um, I just want to make sure that clear the audience that I'm fascinated, but do not prescribe to that theory. They thought like, okay, early man had help from like, you know, people from the stars. Well, it turns out that the, this book on sphere making that no longer exists had schematics for all of these things in fact it is now believed i'm pretty sure this is a relatively recent um conclusion that humankind discovered rudimentary clockworks and clockwork mechanisms thousands of years as far back as i think 87 bc which is when this antikythera mechanism was uh uh conceived of now who made it is a source of debate they think that it did come about by way of Archimedes but specifically one of his contemporaries who uh, I don't know if I'm going to say contemporary but someone who might have lived in around his time or shortly after whose name is I think it's Poseidonus something I believe yeah it's he's not Poseidon but because that's not a real person yeah he lived on an island and they think that this the Antikythera mechanism and all these objects came from that uh, very well-learned island, which was kind of in the middle of all these trading ports. So not only was it a place that was populated and well-funded for any sense of like academics there, uh, so there were inventors there who create these objects, but there was reason to because there were so many sailors. Um, sure enough, this ship was doomed at sea, but it's likely that they were using this Antikythera mechanism um, to navigate the stars, essentially which apparently they didn't navigate too well because they ended up in, you know, underwater. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, that didn't resurface until 1902. And, yeah, so it's been variously dated. Some say 87 BC, some say 150. Um, Archimedes lived earlier than that, but I didn't write it down. So, I mean, it's Archimedes. He's famous. Look him up. Um, <laughs> it's not my job as the person to research this, to do your own research. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, uh, so, the, the point is, this book is lost to us, but if this book contained something of that value, which we didn't 
which we thought didn't come around, wasn't even invented until the 1400s, then people who kind of are a little bit more imaginative than I would like to be think that there might have been other stuff in that book that would, you know, absolutely blow the lid off of what we know of the ancient world and their technology. Because we haven't discovered other things yet, I'm kind of inclined to believe that something of the Antikythera mechanism is as good as it's going to get, and that's pretty impressive and still very groundbreaking in what we know of our history as it relates to the ancient world, or ancient Western world anyway. But the thing that kind of leaves me scratching my head is if this book was so famous and the the contents were so valuable for making technology and for science and physics and, you know, navigating, how come there weren't more reproductions of it? And also, how come we've only found one thing like the Antikythera mechanism? Where did the others go? Did, were they captured and, like, melted down for bronze? Like, what happened? So there's a lot of mysteries here yeah. that... Um, and then I've got one more short thing that doesn't, ha- that's my cheat, but did you guys want to like jump in at any point? Cause I feel like oh. I'm just talking oh, now. No. I feel bad. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in that. Like uh, the way it sort of reminds me of how people thought about Tesla and some of his creations. Cause they were sort of, and, and that's all well-documented, but a lot of them were just discarded as crazy ideas. So I wonder like if there was something else crazier in that book. But know, people just dismissed but it. But people dismissed it. And maybe that's why there were no other copies of the book, because they just sort of dismissed all the things in it. As being crazy talk. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it was like, it sounds like what they found was like way, way outside of its its time period. Like it's it's like us talking to someone about the internet 50 or 60 years ago it, it's sort of like what no you can't do that on the internet you can't have a phone conversation with somebody from the other oh, yeah. side of the world in real time that doesn't happen you know so i'm sort of like well maybe maybe there were other things in that book you're the eternal optimist though you're blowing my the mind anti- <laughs> i'm like i'm oh, thank you i'm sitting here with this big <laughs> smile on my face thinking well now i want to know i hate not knowing i know that drives me nuts <laughs> <laughs> Same. I mean, but that's why I love unsolved mysteries and like uh, the whole genre that this we that this podcast is kind of about. Yeah. Um. I mean, I actually I forgot to mention this, but the the mechanism which I will no longer pronounce is uh, regarded as the first analog computer. Oh now. wow! That's how it's. I can't think of a good analogy or metaphor, but it's almost like the cavemen. Like, thinking of what we know of cavemen, but then they create, like, not an iPhone. That's way too advanced. But something like like a wristwatch. Yeah. Like, going from, like, caveman to, like, here's, I've made a wristwatch. Like, something of that. (laughs) Just, like, that doesn't, it's, like, it's not super outside the realm of possibility, but it's enough that you're, like, wait, really? And sure enough, that's what academics thought for a number of years. So, um, that's crazy. But what's also crazy is, have you heard of a man named Plato? Yes. Yes. Um, He was a philosopher. Uh, I did not study philosophers in, or philosophy in college. There were definitely a lot of philosophy students I tried to date and impress. It didn't go well. Um, Also, they're annoying. Let's be real. Like, I don't... Out of it about anyways so for plato for those of you i mean everyone knows plato 
I want to believe that, but not, you know, I, I trust my audience is all intelligent and from various walks of life and probably can do better research than I can. But uh, Plato, major philosopher, allegory of the cave, look him up. But he had all of these dialogues where we get all of the, his philosophies from. And there's these later dialogues that are each named after uh, famous historical figures of uh, who predated him by a, a number of years, but were kind of just known as historical figures of their time, like statesmen, soldiers. Um, so he created these dialogues as conversations to kind of illustrate a lot of his philosophies, especially how the universe worked. Some kind of call it his unified, the unified field theory of his time. Um, he never finished them. Uh, they're kind of infamous for reasons that will become clear in a second. Uh, the, the one that did get uh, created was uh, Timaeus, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, and then one that was half finished was uh, Critias. Uh, Plato was very, he was kind of very Socratic in a lot of what he did. So it was a lot of asking questions, just questions that lead to more questions to like get to the root <laughs> of an answer. Uh, he also loved allegory and he was a little bit of a trickster as well. Anyways, Hippocrates was this play on third dialogue, which um, would not only provide a further look into, um, you know, this philosopher, but it's believed that this book involves the accounts of a general who helped repel one of Athens, the famous Greek capital uh, city that still exists to this day. So big deal. Uh, helped one of repel one of Athens' earliest invasions and threat to their eventual growth and superiority. That would be cool enough of a history until you find out the name of this so-called rival city that Hermocrates repelled. Can you guess the name of this city? Oh, gosh. I want to go right out there and say something Atlantean, but I'm, I don't know. That's probably too far out. Uh, I don't know. All I have is Pompeii in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm going to have to hand it to you, Morgan, because the name of this rival city is, was Atlantis. Oh, so I, yes, which is a big deal because, you know, most and I'm going to do a whole episode on Atlantis individually because that's definitely a heavy hitter for yeah. me that I want to do a lot of actual research on uh, with a script and everything <laughs> so I don't make silly mistakes over a, a, a roundtable style episode. <laughs> but I will have a lot of talk on Atlantis. There's a lot of great podcasts that have done Atlantis as a subject. Thinking Sideways is one of them. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the backstory is Atlantis is this lost empire that had a lot of technology that would put the Antikythera mechanism to shame if the legends are to be believed. Uh, it allegedly was destroyed and fell into the ocean, which we know is not possible because that's not how continents work. <laughs> but um, it was it, Atlantis as a concept appeared in a lot of uh, Plato's work. Um, and uh, it appears in Critias as an allegory. And what's weird about that book is that it stops mid-sentence while he's talking about it. I think, and again, I really should have done the better research on this, but um, the idea goes is that the book accounts him talking about, it's it's through the eyes of Socrates, who is one of his teachers, talking about uh, Atlantis and like their hubris and how they fell. And Plato writes in Socrates' voice, and then as 
as he's about to say like you know the punishment of atlantis by way of zeus it just he stops writing and no one knows why and it's super weird and it's led Mm -hmm. to of course what we think about atlantis as this lost empire and all of the history channel specials we could go into about that subject but the idea is this book might have delved more into atlantis as a real place um or the name of a real place of which there are candidates for such as like santorini and crete uh it would have might have gone into that so we say it's a lost book it it might have been started and there's no copies that exist of it um but but yeah it would have been interesting if he had completed those dialogues because maybe we would have know what atlantis was maybe it's a place that did exist uh and it's just gone misnamed so yeah anyways that's 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 my little story that's amazing <laughs> it's, it's really funny because we're sitting here both with like open mouths staring at you just silently <laughs> taking all this in it's amazing it's really cool yeah i had a mild obsession with atlantis inwardly i'm panicking you know like oh my gosh i can't pronounce this thing i wrote all this down and now i can't find it as i'm scrolling through my notes like a madman just trying to like name things and then pulling oh i'm gonna get so many like so much hate anyways those are my insecurities let's go on to 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 your let's go on to my insecurities cool um so um, yeah make me feel better morgan let's go into your insecurities (laughs) um probably the fact that i'm laughing right into the microphone that's going to be hard for you all right um so i was going to talk (laughs) i was going to talk to talk to oh my goodness that'd be good if you could it would solve a lot of questions it'd be amazing um i want to talk about lord (laughs) george gordon byron who if we're talking problematic faves he's more problematic than a fave i think um i'm sure your audience probably has a at least a cursory knowledge of Lord Byron, but he was like a rock star poet who had a reputation for uh, sleeping with everything under the sun, basically. And some shenanigans. He liked a good shenanigan. Um, there's the one that everyone knows where... Sounds um, like my kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, one, uh, one of the shenanigans is uh, he was told he wasn't allowed to have a dog in his college accommodations, so he got a bear... And they couldn't stop him. As you do. <laughs> they couldn't stop him from bringing a bear onto campus because it wasn't in the bylaws. They only mentioned dogs. I would have gotten along really well with him. <laughs> at, I feel. At that age, probably. This is before it started getting real dark. Because Byron... Uh, oh. Yeah. The the issue with Byron is that a lot of the things that we would not see as scandalous today, like his bisexuality... And the fact that he's incredibly sex positive, if we're going to look at it from that point of view. Well, then we would have gotten along really well yeah. then. <laughs> um, he, uh, that, so that's all wonderful. But there's also the, the things that um, we'd objectively see as horrible now, like, you know, the child neglect, the violence, the sexual assaults. Mm, no, don't like it. Yeah. So um, all the things that were problematic for Victorian, the Victorian public and the 19th century public combined with the things that are just objectively awful meant that people would pretty much believe anything you said about Lord Byron. So what we do know about the man definitively is that he did have a load of affairs and he was not a particularly nice person. Um, After he was accused of 
raping his wife. Yeah. Nah. Yep. Nah. Done. Ignore, scratch whatever I just said. Yeah. Yeah. It's out. At the, yeah. After he was accused of raping his wife and they separated, uh, and the rumors that he had an affair with his half sister Allegra. Um, once these rumors started to really turn the tide of popular opinion against him, he uh, left England uh, on an indefinite trip around Europe, um, where he basically hopped from port to port. Uh, yeah, just being generally Byronic, aloof, brooding, and sleeping with people, um, and getting involved in. Um, so he was pretty much Dorian Gray. Yes, yes, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the quote most people know about Lord Byron is... Which I loved your episode on, by the way. Oh, thank, oh, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's now Brent's cultural touchstone for the Victorian era now. Oh, God, I never want to go there again. We, uh, <laughs> Bravo. I think we recorded that about three Good or four man. times. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, so the, the quote that everyone knows about Byron is the mad, bad and dangerous to know, which is the Charlotte Lamb... Uh, not Charlotte Lamb. She's a uh, she's a uh, romantic novelist. Caroline Lamb, uh, Lady <laughs> Caroline Lamb, uh, said the mad, bad, and dangerous to know quote. Um, and she's the one that burnt an effigy of Byron when he betrayed her, and she was just intense. Um, but I'm not going to get on a tangent about Caroline Lamb. I could do that for ages. Um, so all this stuff, all this cumulative. All these cumulative rumours about Byron would mean that his memoirs would be really interesting. Um, but after Byron contracted malaria in Greece and died age 36, um, the memoirs that he'd been writing while he was overseas, uh, they it fell to his close friend Thomas More to look after them and act as his literary executor. Uh, and More... Moore uh, sought the advice of Byron's publisher, uh, John Murray. Okay, so the publisher, John Murray, was kind of, um, he was the gatekeeper of all literary exposure. Like, um, he came, the, the Murray family was a, uh, they were a big publishing family. There's still John Murray's running the same publishing company from the same operation, from the same operation point, um, from the same house. And um, they, uh, wow. yeah, a bunch, sorry, a bunch of Byron's uh, friends got together uh, with the manuscript of his memoirs that he'd been working on for so long. And uh, three of them had read it, one had not. So there was John Murray, his lit uh, John Murray, the publisher, his literary advisor, William Gifford, Thomas Moore, and John Cam Hobhouse were deciding what to do with, this, with these memoirs. Uh, Murray never read. Mm -hmm. Murray never read the book. Uh, Gifford said that the uh, book was only fit for a brothel. And cool. yes, and well, I mean, no surprise there. Yeah, and the only person that uh, wanted to hold on to the manuscript was Thomas More. Uh, all the others decided that the manuscript had to be destroyed, and so they ripped up the pages and threw them in the fireplace at fifty. Albemarle Street, Piccadilly. So Byron's memoirs and all the answers and the all the answers to the questions that people have been asking about him: how much was fict fiction, how much was fact. It all went up in flames that night. Uh, <sighs> Just like matches. Exactly. Like matches. I, I only realized uh, 
oh, about two days ago that Brent and I both talked about fires. And the, yeah. <laughs> um, so we do have a little bit of an idea of what his memoirs might have contained from letters that he sent to people. Okay, s- spill it. All right. So the people that read the memoirs, uh, he uh, quite cruelly sent a section of his memoirs to his ex-wife, the one that he had basically tortured, mm. um, for her to proof. Jerk move. Yeah, for her to proofread. Um, with a letter saying, you will find nothing to flatter you, nothing to lead you to the most remote supposition that we could ever have been or be happy together. So she's probably not going to come off great in that. Uh, he sounds a little bit bitter. Yeah, he does sound a little bit bitter. Um, and he sent a letter to the publisher promising passion and prejudice in the memoirs. Um, but he also said to Murray that they wouldn't be libelous. So obviously it must have trod some line between scandalous and not, or Byron was just crazy, which is obviously a pretty valid reading of everything that's happening. Um, so if Gifford's assertion that they belonged in a brothel is to be believed, then surely they must have been salacious. And uh, many anticipate that the rumours of incest could finally be proven or disproven. Um, oh. Yeah, but we'll never know because it's all gone. And um, let, uh, instead we have these myths, which let's face it, they're probably more fun than the grim reality of this potential sociopath's uh, exploits. And like I say exploits, but it could be so dark that the publishers just decided that they just, it was unconscionable to publish it. Um, it's always possible. Um, Tom- Knowing nothing of Byron, you had me really excited about him talking about bringing bears onto campus and all of his like, misdeeds and you know i'm always uh, i'm always happy to see a bisexual make it in history and then you just kept going and now i'm like oh now i'm sad and regret everything i said about (laughs) being excited to hang out with lord byron yeah no i think i think i would not do that i think we got to hold on to you know your oscar wilde's your bram stoker's and you know although bram stoker was repressed and a bit weird about his sexuality but definitely yeah you know, they're they're less problematic than Byron, at least. I think I think we'll um, just we'll just hang out with Byron's bear. I think <laughs> that's a better idea. Dang, that's that's fascinating. It's always a shame when you know anything gets burnt because um, someone you know objects to it. Uh, in some cases, it's the author themselves who decides to get it burned, and their their spouse pulls it from the flames, and you know. Uh, that's what was going to happen to Carrie, I think, by Stephen King. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, um, one thing that has happened is like a portrait of Byron now hangs above the fireplace where the memoirs were burnt. Wow. So it's like a real Dorian Gray story. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) and the Murray family still owns the building and every time there's renovations, they kind of hold out hope that maybe like a bait and switch was done. Maybe Byron's memoirs are out there somewhere. But uh, in all likelihood... Or like in the walls. Yeah. Behind something. Exactly, yeah. But, yeah. And and Thomas More tried to stitch together a bit of a biography using like letters and uh, other correspondence between Byron and himself. But, I mean, there's just so much we're never going to know. And a lot of it's just conjecture and speculation, which is what makes him one of the most written about writers 
even though not a whole lot of people have actually read his poetry. Uh, more people read about his life than his poetry, which is a bit sad because his poetry is actually quite good and he was an asshole. So, <laughs> you know, focusing on the poetry might have been a better way to remember the poetic legacy of Byron rather than rejoicing in the horribleness of the man. So we do apologise for uh, both having ours end in a fiery end, I guess, yeah. a fiery grave. Yeah. Don't yeah, don't feel bad about both books uh, that you covered, like ending up, you know, burning because like that's how this episode opens up. It's the burning of uh, the Library of Alexandria. I always do a narrative clip before we go into into the into the roundtable talk. So that's everyone's heard that by now. So it's 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 on brand. Um. Were, those were the two books that she wanted to discuss, right? Yes, yeah. yes, those were the two ones. Um, the only other one that we kind of looked into was, um, sorry, my headphones cutting out. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I got you now. The only one we, uh, the only other one we looked into uh, was Hemingway, but basically the gist of that is all his manuscripts got put on a train by his poor wife, and then they were stolen. Yep. And <laughs> yeah. Um. All right, so that's awesome. I have a few drive-by. I like to call them drive. It's not really not a good word to use, but <laughs> uh, you know, a few short ones uh, that I could touch upon a bit yeah, before we yeah. close out. Sounds good. Um, that was fantastic, by the way, and um, I am looking forward to hearing that without the <laughs> the bumps in the road to the to the audio. Um, but you know, we're we're doing this from like entirely different continents, so this is kind of like a miracle that this is happening at all, and it's it's really special. Absolutely. But, um, okay. So the t- I've got two, and then they'll be quick. So the first is uh, Inventio Fortunata, which I did not take Latin, so uh, that means uh, fortune making discovery. Yeah. It's a lost book that was uh, penned by an anonymous 14th century monk working under the auspices of uh, England. Um, he was a Franciscan friar. Uh, it, he chronicled uh, his explorations of the North Atlantic regions, which uh, under King uh, Edward III, su- supposedly, because, you know, it doesn't exist. Spoilers. But the big deal about this is that um, um, Mercator, who you might know for being the map guy, <laughs> um, you know, Mercator projection, uh, Gerardus Mercator was a map maker. Uh, and we take a lot of we still use basically his uh conceit for like a flat map to this day Uh, a lot of he was basically a revolutionary and he was not an adventurer himself but he spoke a lot of languages and knew a lot of adventurers and had just like was just a committed scholar who poured over maps that came in from everywhere because he just was in a very um strategic city at the time but what was so important about this and what mercator uh incorporated into his manuscripts is that this was the first map that would have charted the Arctic regions, which sounds exciting until you hear what the descriptions of the Arctic regions are, according to this anonymous uh, manuscript. So I like the, uh, I like the going from the fire to ice thing. That's kind of cool. We're following a theme here. It's a song of ice and fire. So uh, there, it's it starts with a discussion of uh, these indrawing seas. The closer you get to the the north, the more that the seas start to pull, the tides start to pull you in somewhere. So a lot of people go missing because they're hard to control, and the ships presumably get stranded uh, ashore. 
So, uh, quote, in the midst, uh, so you get there, and what you see at the top of the world is four continents. So in the midst of the four con- of the four countries is a whirlpool into which these empty into which there empty these four indrawing seas which divide the north and the water rushes round and descends into the earth just as if one were pouring it through a filter funnel it is four degrees wide on every side of the pole that is to say eight degrees altogether except that right under the pole there layers there lays a bare rock in the midst of the sea its its circumference is almost 33 french miles i don't know what that means (laughs) sounds fancy and it is all of magnetic stone and it is as high as the clouds. So essentially, they're at, at the top of the north. The North Pole is literally a North Pole. It is a giant mountain made out of magnets that stretches into the heavens. And surrounding it is this giant dramatic whirlpool around four continents. And these all the, all the world's oceans essentially go down a drain. That is the takeaway from this. <laughs> Obviously, it's not true. But for years, that's what was at the top of the world on the maps that was just gospel and everyone took it from this this anonymous source now people did go looking for this source when they you know the age of exploration started in earnest they could never find it you're, so you're pretty disappointed hey <laughs> you spend yeah. months trekking across the the globe to find there's just more ice. there's just more <laughs> it's just a lot of ice it's just cold there's nothing like neat um hp lovecraft has his own speculations in his work at the mountains of madness oh wow <laughs> uh that it, but there it's it's not a giant mountain it's like an evil thing that you go insane if you look at it so not as good or cool but, um but very lovecraftian so you know at least he's all very lovecraft so yeah <laughs> yep exactly um so that description came by another manuscript that that cited this original document by this anonymous uh, source and there's r- debate over how credible that original source is since it's not named um it's just a lot of circumstance and hearsay so definitely something for further research um and then my last little book because uh, i think this is interesting is meanderings of memory by nightlark that is just Ooh. the one the one name wonder nightlark it is uh allegedly a rare book that was published sometime in 1852 um 1852 uh and it was used for 50 entries into the oxford english dictionary now the short version of what the oxford english dictionary is is that it is a dictionary as the name implies but what's so special about it is that every entry in the oed shows the full history of a word as far back as the editors can trace it and that is the how they do that is that the oed was the first instance of crowdsourcing so it was people who were just well read uh english english world people um they would just send in these little cards of uh curious words they came upon and then by and then dating them and saying what book they were from and then the people at the oed would just take all these cards and then through process of elimination find the earliest usage of that book and so many of these submissions came from one book in particular called the meanderings of memory um among the interesting words used in meanderings of meanderings of memory are the words cockabondi couch word uh dyke presuming the the type of dam in the netherlands uh flesh foodless revirginize shoe trous and unstuff what to name a few what was so what that see what was going on before this novel what were they calling what were they calling flesh before the novel I don't. This is just what I found online. I don't know skin. 
You have a nice coat there. I'm... Your bottom coat. Look at that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, what's so scandalous about all of this is that, you know, they kept using this, you know, these citations for years and years and years up until like 1989 to 2000, every publication of the Oxford English Dictionary. And then um, around 2013, someone over at the OED realized that they could not find this Meanderings of Memory as a book wherever they looked. And they thought it was just kind of weird, like, oh, it got misplaced. But they, you know, they put the, you know, the word out, the bulletin out to all these, you know, booksellers, rare booksellers in England could find nothing. Wow. So they're like, what, what is going on here? And as they looked into it, it got weirder because all we know is that it comes from someone named Nightlark, which is clearly a pseudonym. And it was... uh the one attribution by this anonymous writer is a Latin phrase that translates to why did my tears please you more? My uh, Philomel, which just (laughs) sounds like a jilted lover. So what's interesting is that their name is Nightlark and someone on Reddit who is invest doing an investigation into this found out that Philomel is another name for Philomela, who's a character from Greek mythology. And that name refers to a nightingale. Oh, So it all, it's kind of a play on words. Now, they did some research into it because clearly it was a weird mystery. They did, they thought it was a hoax at first and that someone just made up the names and sent them in and gave a a fake citation. But there's been more investigation done into this and they found that Nightlark is kind of an oxymoron because like it might be Nightingale or... It might be a lark and a nightingale is associated with the night and then lark is associated with the day. And it, people who are doing a deep rabbit hole dive into this on Reddit seem to think that the author might have been a poet who was writing of a, a, a doomed love in the vein of Romeo and Juliet because there's references to night to nightingales and larks uh, and night by day in that famous balcony scene yeah. of Romeo and Juliet, which fun fact, not to get on tangent. There's n- nothing about in the original context of Romeo and Juliet where she's on a balcony. That was just <laughs> someone ran with the idea, and that's what we come to know as. In the original version, there's no staging for a balcony. Fun fact. Wow. Not relevant to this, but oh, throwing cool. it out there. Um, so they think that the person was uh, a lost lover. There's some someone on Reddit speculated that that might have been a homosexual love like a unrequited love so it was kind of like opposites you know things that could not exist like larks and nightingales in the same it's a lot of metaphor that i didn't really fully grasp but anyways back to like the subject of the person who made this um they found that it might be attributed they they recognized the handwriting as that of being uh, belonged to someone named Edward Peacock. So more bird references. And Edward Peacock was a uh, basically a bookseller. He contributed a lot to the Oxford English Dictionary in its first version in the 1800s. Uh, he collected a lot of quotes. Um, and in fact, they were able to compare his handwriting to all of the quotes that were known by him. And he was the one who submitted it. So therefore, the consensus is... That I've come, the conclusion I've come to is that uh, this was a book of poems, 
that was published in a short vanity run, as they call it. So like a vanity press run yeah. is basically a writer who it's the old world equivalent or the Victorian equ- equivalent to publishing your own ebook on Amazon. <laughs> um, so just like a short print run. And they think that maybe it was Ed, uh, this Edward Peacock fellow writing under the pseudonym of Nightlark, which Peacock, Nightlark, they're all birds. That's kind of my, why I think it was him. But uh, no one's been able to find a book. So a theory is that it sucked. It was <laughs> that it just everyone just does a copy doesn't exist anymore because it was so small run and it just never took off uh, or that it was something he never published. Um, others think that if it wasn't him, it might have been a woman who had to publish it under a pseudonym. There's all sorts of speculation about it. I seem to, I'm pretty sure it's this guy though. Um, but we'll never know because the book doesn't exist. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff that I wanted to go into. Yeah. There's, uh, the, the Yongle Encyclopedia that was burnt, um, and during the during Chinese book burnings in the ancient world, uh, around like the 26th century uh, BC, there was uh, this one has no follow up, but there was a Francois Villon poem called "The Romance of the Devil's Fart." Ah! That <laughs> that's, a... that's all that that's there is nothing else on it, and I just like nope, that's good enough for me. That's all you need. Um, Car- Cardenio, a play by William Shakespeare, an early version of Hamlet. Uh, the early Maya codices, uh, the memoirs of Lord Byron I actually wrote down. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work by uh, Walter Benjamin that was lost when he fled from the Nazis. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. So yeah, I encourage everyone to look it up. But um, I'm done hearing myself talk. Do you guys, <laughs> guys want to plug anything? Any final thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I'll, we'll just plug the podcast, I guess. I mean, we're, yeah, uh, we are releasing one episode every month for certain, and every uh, Saturday we try to release a little something, but yeah, yeah. We're, start, we're starting off small. Yeah, we're starting off small. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, uh, upcoming we've got Sin City, which I'm not particularly happy about, but Brent. Uh, I'm like a huge Robert Rodriguez fan. I'm like a really big he like i don't know he inspires me lots okay he like, but he like does everything himself so like he gets cameras and he goes out and he shoots everything himself and it's amazing like there's some serious yeah there's something to admire for that there's some serious toxic masculinity and yeah objectification of women and the whole the whole comic book because i'm reading the graphic novel the whole graphic novel is pretty much from the male gaze it's just yeah. But the cinematics Awful. are amazing. Yeah, in it. Miller doesn't. It's beautiful. It's I. I mean, as a work, it's beautiful. Yeah. But yeah, not what I would say is the most pro woman uh, piece of literature yeah. or comic art out there. No, we will. We will have a huge disclaimer at the start of it. I think. I bet. Yeah. It may be like a five or ten minute long disclaimer alone. <laughs> yeah, but apart from that, we've also got an interview with um Alex Roberts which I'm still trying to repair because we had a bit of a Skype incident with that one. Um, and she uh, has done her thesis on vampiric women, which is really, really interesting. Oh. It's so good. I can't... I'm so here for it. Carmilla. Oh. Yeah, and that's one of the ones she studied. She did Carmilla, Lygia, that Edgar Allan Poe short story, 
uh, she, which is the uh, the origin of the she who must be obeyed. Uh, yep. yep. That's actually, I did a, in, oh, I think it was the the Rain Queen episode I talked about she yeah. and the works of, yeah. Um, H.R. Ryder, wasn't it? Or Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank you. I was like, the works of, oh no, don't say anything. I have ne- Maybe she'll fill in. You came to my rescue, Morgan. Thank you. I have never read, I started she, like I was trying to be really good and read up before I had the interview with Alex and I started she and I just couldn't finish it. Um, and The Blood of the Vampire, which is another perfect uh uh imperial gothic novel which has a lot of very racist uh undertones overtones and midtones i think it's just racist through and through but yeah so it's it's when i manage to release that it's it'll be very interesting alex is very intelligent and very well read and she makes me feel incredibly stupid in a lovely way and also you guys did um and you did your interview with 33%, right? Because I know that they talked to you. Yes. Yeah. For the uh, 99 word flash fiction. Did you, I saw that you had an interview. Did you do that one as well? Yes. How fun was that? I did. I love them. They're so much fun and I'll plug them right now. So 33% pulp is a podcast with three amazing people from LA who each do a third of a pulp fiction novel. They're so funny. They're so educated. They clearly know what they're talking about. They come from that background. It's a lot of fun. And I did an interview with them because I submitted a, a piece to them for this contest, uh, like a flash fiction contest. So I interviewed with them recently and I got to see them. on. They didn't get to see me on camera because, well, I can't figure out Skype. Um, <laughs> you know how my research is, so you can see how deep, well I do with technology. But they're great. Uh, they're, they have the best haircuts on a head that i've ever seen <laughs> on anyone um that but that's like the the least cool thing about them they're great so definitely check them out um uh anyways getting off topic here thank you guys so much for coming on the show please thank everyone listen us. to the franken pod it's it's brilliant keep up the good work you guys are putting out content uh you do a ton of research so you know bless you for even getting one episode out a month it's it's you know, all of it is admired. I can tell that so much work goes into the, you know, yeah, uh, there's a lot of quality there. Um, and I've been listening to it at work. So I look forward to your next, your next episode. Thank you. Um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry about the audio delays, but, um, yeah. Anything else for, before we sign off? Um, no, just yeah. thank you so much for having us been listening to Relic since, uh, yeah. Uh, since we actually bumped into you on uh, Twitter and, yeah, I've been picking through episodes when I can because they're just so dense. They're not the sort of thing that you can um, that you want to miss things because you you craft this story. And it's like you can zone out and be like, oh yeah, do to do because you want to hear what's going on, and I I really appreciate that. I love a podcast that's actually doing something rather than just filling the air, you know, and and oh, yours wow. does that, and I really really I really like it a lot. Oh, thank you. Um, all right. That, that I'm not gonna. I, I've already said enough nice, nice things. So um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll just sign off. Here. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to put Relic on your top shelf, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes or a review, so more people can come along on the journey. 
connect with us on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod or send us an email at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, when the Japanese surrendered during World War II, they abandoned their plundered loot on the Philippines. Rumor has it that an infamous general by the name of Yamashita hid an enormous cache of wealth and objects somewhere in the jungle, and this remained a rumor until an absurdly valuable piece of the treasure was discovered years later, only to be lost again. What happened to Yamashita's treasure? And what was the curious case of the Golden Buddha? The adventure continues. <laughs>